You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. In a bull market, the surprises come to the upside. Can't sit here and say, well, GDX has to correct 21% before it makes the next leg higher. It, it, you just you can't do that because it's a bull market. Surprises are to the upside. Welcome back to Money Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Thank you for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Orefinders Resources. This is a company that we recently profiled. If you haven't yet heard my interview with Stephen Stewart, the CEO, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. I would encourage you to check that out. The company is exploring near Kirkland Lake Gold's world-class Macassa deposit, and they are seeking that billion-dollar drill hole in their projects there. They hold the third largest land package on the Ontario side of the Cadillac break. To learn more, go to their website, orfinders.ca, or you could look up the ticker in Toronto under the symbol ORX or on the OTC, ORFDF. My guest today is Jordan Royburn of thedailygold.com. Jordan, I'm sure you know, comments on the gold markets. He also runs a subscription service profiling uh, specific junior miners that he finds to be high quality that he shares with his subscribers. Jordan, welcome back on to Mining Stock Education. And I'd like to get your analysis of where we're at in the gold and the junior gold sector right now. If you compare the current time period to other historical analogs, what are you comparing it to and what insights can we take away from that? Okay, well, I have a really long answer for that. I'll try and condense it. Now, in the very big picture, from a bird's eye view, um, I my work and research has led me to conclude that the best historical comparison for where we are is the early 1960s. And there's a lot of reason for that. It makes a lot of sense given where the stock market is and where it has been uh, over the last 10, 15 years or so. If you look at statistical inflation and also, um, yeah, more so statistical inflation than bond yields. I was going to mention bond yields, but you know, bond yields could be turning up into a new cycle that could last decades. Uh, so that, that happened more so in the 50s than the early 60s. But statistical inflation, uh, that didn't start to break out until, I want to say, 1964, 1965. Uh, and then it had a second breakout, which was bigger in 68 or 69. And so if we're looking at the CPI, for example, it's been trending down since the early 90s, so for about 30 years. And um, if we do see inflation rise and that uh, either accelerates or that rise is sustained, it's going to break the downtrend line in the statistics and that could be similar to what happened in the 1960s. And also, if we look at the gold stocks, the, to me, the gold stocks, the, the low we had in 2016 was very similar to the low we had in 1957. If you go back to the late 1950s, that's really when the gold stocks were the cheapest they had ever been. Uh, either, well, I'll, I'll stop that for a second. The cheapest they had ever been, based on my research, was probably in 2015. The, the second point as far as the cheapest they'd ever been, looking at various things, um, would be the late 1950s. So there's a there's a lot of similarities uh, to to that point uh, as far as the macro and kind of transitioning to an inflation environment. Uh, the gold stocks just being so historically cheap, and um, in addition to that, the stock market. Um, it had this really strong rise from 1949 to 57, which was much like the rise from 2009 
2017, 2018. So, I mean, that's kind of my big picture view is we're very similar to the early 1960s. And now cyclically, if we move into kind of where we are in this particular cycle, the economic cycle, uh, there's a there's a couple different comparisons. You can compare where we are with the early 1930s, the early 1960s again, or the early 2000s. Uh, you know, based on the site, the economic cycle. Of course, all of those were super bullish for gold stocks. And if we look at what happened, even and this is an important point, even after the economy recovered in those uh, downturns. Even after that point, precious metals continued to do well for several years after the fact. Even if we look at 2008, it was about two and a half years after the bottom. They did well in the early 2000s of the economy. Uh, they had bottomed out in, in late 2001 or early 2002. You know, the, the market turned in late 2002. Gold stocks had a great run for even more than three or four years. You go back to the Great Depression, the economy and the market bottomed, I think, in late 1932. Gold stocks did fabulously well for another three plus years. So as far as the particular cycle, uh, that given that history, and if we look at the 1960s in that cycle, it was very similar to the early 2000s where gold stocks actually performed really well from about 1960 to late 1967. So that was similar to the early 2000s. Now, with that long historical analysis, let me zoom into kind of where we are in the more near term. If you look at the rebound that we've had since March, it was actually, and I'm just talking about kind of on like a one-year basis, it was most, the analog, It's it's so far it's been most similar to was that one in 2008, 2009. And so if you go back and you look at 2008, 2009, the gold stocks and gold as well had a really strong move for four months after the late October low. So then in 2009, after that point, they basically corrected for two months or 43 days. So you have to look at things in price or time. Now, the uh, this particular rebound, it started in March, continued into, I think, early August. It was about it was also four months long. So very similar. So given that, I've kind of been tracking that correction that happened in 2009, comparing it to where we are now. And what's been happening is so far the decline in price for the correction now has been very mild. It hasn't been as deep as it was in 2009. Uh, the 2009 correction in terms of time, it lasted about 43 days. So from that point, that is when GDX started to move higher and basically sustain it and move to new highs. Right now, I think we're in day 24 of that correction. So that kind of gives us a guide. Corrections are a function of price and time. So as far as time, there's more to go for correction, at least another month. As far as price, you know, I, I'm not particularly sure. I mean, we could move lower. Gold kind of has, it, it has support around 1920. I mean, it's bouncing today. Um, to me, it doesn't, if it breaks below, then it'll probably bottom in the low 1800s and it'll happen really quickly. You know, otherwise it could still trade and consolidate for another month. Uh, but I mean, given, uh, given all of this information with respect to the near term, I still think we're going to consolidate for at least another month. But at some point after that, you know, we should start to make the next leg higher. It's just coming into August, Bill, we were just, we were so overbought. Uh, and so stretched on all the technical metrics uh, that just it, it, looking at all these things, it was it was you know not a difficult call that the market was going to pause and correct. And so that's what we've been doing for the last month. And I just looking at all these things, it tells me you know I I think that um, the sector is probably this this correction as far as time is going to continue. I think for another month. Jordan, what 
indicators do you look to to say to yourself, I need to throw out my technical analysis hat because we're in a bull market and these equities in particular, I'm speaking of the gold equities, might not perform according to what I would think in terms of pullbacks and such. You know, what what indicators are you looking at that, you know, (laughs) all bets are off in terms of the paradigm I'm using to understand what's going on? Well, first and foremost, it's it's really the price action. You know, one thing I've noticed is that when you get into a bull market, you really have to adjust your parameters. And for me, the market in a bull market, the surprises come to the upside. And so one example is GDX in the 2009 correction. It corrected. It had basically had it had a leg down corrected. 23 percent then it had a good rally it snapped back and rallied near the high but then it had another leg down when it declined 21 percent and that's when it got that's when it got to day 43 when the correction ended now i think gdx so far has only corrected 16 percent so for me um and one thing in bull markets that we find is, as far as uh, corrections in precious metals, there's price and time. The price correction can happen really quickly, where most of the damage can be done almost in like a week or two, and then it, you know, it tends to chop around and consolidate for a while. Maybe it retests the low, you know, and then and then after that, you know, it can begin the next like higher. But you know, circling back, that would be <clears throat> the one example to your question is. If I was really going to be a stickler, I, you know, I'd say, well, GDX has to correct 21%. It has to correct as 20% because that's what it did in history. And, you know, 16%, that's not that much of a correction, but as far as price, but um, look, you know, time is also a component of the correction. So usually when you, when the, when the correction doesn't go that deep, as far as price, it can go a little bit deeper than you think as far as time. So that's something I'm looking for. Um, with respect to the rest of this correction is, you know, there's a consolidation, it, you know, it's going to continue. But that's this is just an example of why you can't be too rigid. I can't sit here and say, well, GDX has to correct 21% before it makes the next leg higher. It, it You just, you can't do that because it's a bull market. Surprises are to the upside. And, you know, again, I'm going to wait for this correction to mature. I still think there's more to go as far as time, but that's one example based on what you're asking, which is, yeah, 16% or 15%. It's a really mild correction as far as price, but give it some time. And if the market continues to hold and it corrects for another month and it's really stable, then that price action is telling us that, the market is really unlikely to correct more as far as price and that, you know, indeed, maybe as far as price, the correction was only 15, 16% and not the 20% that uh, I was looking for. So I know that, I mean, it's, it's hard to give a direct answer, but that's just one example of what you're talking about. You can't be you know, you have to be a little bit flexible when you're looking at these things, but you, but you can't be too rigid where, okay, well, this, this certain thing that I'm looking for, it has to happen exactly, uh, you know, before we can, you know, finish this correction or whatever. Um, so I would say, you know, you, you, you can't be too rigid with everything that you're looking at. So does technical analysis become most useful in a gold bull market like this just to hopefully ascertain or decipher the big swings, whether it be up or down? I mean, it's really useful if you know how to use it. And my, you know, my best example of that is really just in the last month or two where um, I feel that I had a really good view on the market where I was looking at these breadth indicators that were just getting extremely overbought. And every time they had gotten to these levels, 
um, they had, uh, you know, we, we had seen a sustained correction in the gold stocks. And in addition to that, as far as GDX and GDXJ, we also peaked, we eventually peaked at levels that were, I think they were Fibonacci levels or something like that. So you, you, you're looking at a number of factors and when they all kind of make the same argument that the market is going to st- stop here and start to correct, that's useful from the standpoint of, you know, not predicting that the market is going to go lower. It's useful from the standpoint of telling you the odds are showing that the market is really overbought and that this move is likely to, you know, pause or end here. Therefore, you know, we're therefore don't buy anything like we're going to be on the sidelines generally. I mean, there might be one or two individual companies that are buys for their own reasons, but generally for the sector, you want to stay away. So with respect to and I know you've probably heard this from other guests, but keeping things simple is going to help you make money over the long run. And so you know, my framework is the most money is going to be made by buying and holding. So you're either buying or holding. And the second point would be also you trim big winners along the way. So my technical analysis in the last month or two coming into this sector peak that we had, which is kind of a mild peak, it was basically telling us, okay, now is not a time to buy. Now is probably a time to trim something, take a little bit off the table. You know, if you have a stock that's gone vertical or it's become too big a part of your portfolio, that's when you trim. So the, t- the technical analysis helps me execute that strategy. I'm not using it to try and, okay, well, I, you know, I think the market's going to peak here, so I'm going to sell everything and try and buy back in, or I'm I'm going to go short here because I'm trading. That's not what I use it for. That's not what it's helpful for. It's helpful to execute my simple strategy, which is, you know, I, I'm, I'm buying and holding. So if I'm not buying, I'm holding, or I may be trimming a few big winners. And what the technical analysis told me then is it's not time to buy. It, it might be time to trim one or two things. You know, I'm, I'm holding irregardless. Now, moving forward to the present, what the technical analysis is telling me is, you know, we're correcting now, the sector's correcting, but it has more to go. And, you know, eventually, whether it be, I don't know, two or three weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or five weeks, eventually we're going to get to a point where it's going to the sector will be a strong buy again. And that's what the technical analysis is telling me. And it's not that's what I'm using it for. I'm not trying to use it to nail, you know, buy a stock at, uh, you know, 50 cents or, or a, you know, maybe a stock's at a dollar twenty. You know, I if it corrects to 95 cents or a dollar, I mean, if I buy it at a dollar five, it's still a good buy. I just I want to try and buy it at a point in time when the correction is ending and it's more likely to start a new leg higher. And I'm, so I'm trying to do that and also buy it when it's off the high. But that that's what. I use technical analysis for it. It helps me execute my strategy and I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible. One thing that, you know, amateurs with technicals and charts, what they do is they try and overcomplicate it and they try and use it to predict every twist and turn when you really just try and keep it simple, use it to help you execute your strategy. It hasn't been a time to buy the sector. I'd still, I'd say, you know, now it's still not quite time to buy the sector, but um, at some point, again, be it four weeks, eight weeks, six weeks, a month, five weeks, whatever, at some point, the technicals will probably say, you know, now based on risk reward, now it's time to get back in the sector. Now it's time to be a buyer. So that's really how I use it. I use it to help me execute uh, a strategy, which I think is simple. I would like to get your commentary on how the silver juniors are performing. Silver, as we chat, is about $27. 
About 30 days ago, it was closer to $30, yet I have silver juniors that are currently hitting 52-week highs, even with the pullback in silver. So are these silver juniors running ahead of themselves too far and too fast because of investor speculation, or are they telegraphing a move higher? What would be your commentary here? It's a really good question. Um, I don't, you know, and silver, silver has been holding up better than gold during this little correction. And the reason for that is it's all around inflation expectations. When precious metals are moving because of economic weakness, like we saw um, after March and also more so last year, when that happens, that uh, is when gold's going to outperform silver. Excuse me. Now, when you get to the other side of that, when you have rising inflation expectations like we have now, that's when silver will outperform gold. So I think that explains the strength in silver. Now, the silver junior sector, I mean, it's so much different than what it was like 10 or 15 years ago. There's so few companies. There's very few legitimate producers. Uh, there's very few. And a lot a lot of these silver companies, they're basically base metals companies masquerading as silver. I mean, if you look at the deposits that some of these companies have, they're like 30% or 40% silver and the rest are base metals. So that's just a side comment. Like there's not, there's, there's re really very few pure silver deposits out there. And a lot of these companies that are marketing themselves as silver companies, they're really more so base metals companies. Now, I think, I don't know how much we can really read into uh, a couple of silver or a handful of silver juniors. Uh, I don't know how much we can read into that signaling about the, the larger sector, just because it's such a tiny sector. It's a tiny market. And I, I would, I would for focus a little bit more so on silver. I mean, I do look at the SILJ ETF. I like that more than SIL because SIL, a lot of those silver companies, gold is a huge part of their business. So they're, they're not, they're not they're really not, pure silver companies anymore. So I prefer using SILJ. So you can look at that um, if you want to get a better read on the sector. But I, I do think I do think a lot of these uh, silver juniors, um, the ones that you noted that are still making 52-week highs are very close. I do think those have really run too far, um, not necessarily because of the price of silver, but more so just because their their underlying value is not that great. That's what I'd say. I mean, we have to be really careful with a lot of these silver companies. Majority of them don't have good deposits. You know, they have silver in the name. And if Eric Sprott mentions them on his radio show, uh, suddenly there's like a huge amount of buying. Um, so it, it's with these individual silver juniors, you have to be really careful because they're basically being driven by speculation, momentum, greed, and not really the fundamentals. I mean, there is a little bit, I mean, there is some fundamental argument there. I mean, if they do have a silver deposit, the silver price has gone a lot higher. So it does make sense. But I would just caution people, you have to know what you're buying. And for some of those, like those would be the ones where I would be taking a little bit of money off the table, because those are the ones that don't have like, in, in the majority of cases, they don't have like an underlying economic deposit yet. And they're really just, they're like firecrackers. You know, if, if you hold them for too long, they might burn you eventually. Uh, but uh, the ride going higher will be great. But those are the ones that you need to be a little more aggressive with taking profits along the way. I mean, I tell people, you know, trim, you know, sell a third, sell a half along the way. Some of those, yeah, some of those ones, you have to be careful. And if they're still around 52-week highs, now would be a time to 
take some of the profits off the table. And look, you can still, you know, if we if we have more of a correction in silver and they come down 30% or whatever, you can buy back into them. If they keep going higher, great, you're still invested. But the key is to make money and also you got to reduce your risk along the way. And so when we talk about trimming things, the silver juniors is one area where I would be uh trimming at least when these things go vertical and they get really overbought because in the majority of cases those stocks are going up because people are getting excited about silver uh, you know eric sprott is mentioning them on a radio show or they're paying money for promotion here and there uh those are just you know those are the reasons why they're going up you know in, in most cases not necessarily because they're working on this great deposit which is going to be this high grade find and someone's going to buy them eventually I, in most cases, it's not that. It's the other things that are driving it higher. And over the very long term, that's not sustainable. And that's why you have to be careful and book profits along the way. Good advice. Jordan, before you leave, if you could allow me to play the devil's advocate, uh, you're a newsletter writer and an information provider in terms of the gold sector market timing, things like this. And a comment that shows up every now and then in the YouTube comments on my channel is in regards to some of the newsletter writers I interview. And someone will say, well, if their knowledge is so superior and great, why don't they just keep it for themselves and get rich? Uh, why are they charging subscribers? Are they you know, trying to make get rich off of their subscribers rather than this superior knowledge that they claim. If you were having coffee with an individual like this, uh, what would your response be? That is a, that is a great question. Um, I, 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 I think it's a little misplaced probably um, to your audience because I think you interview mostly legitimate, honest providers of information. Um, I mean, one of my retorts would be, well, you could say the same thing if you were a chef, like you're a great cook, but you know, why don't you just cook for yourself? Uh, I mean, because there's a, and you could say the same thing. Well, you could ask the same question to like Paul Tudor Jones or George Soros. You know, oh, you're so great. Why don't you just trade your own money? Well, you know, after, because they can make a shitload of money, excuse my French, managing other people's money. So, I mean, you can ask that question up and down the line. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a most appropriate question for um, the newsletter publishers that are basically promising people huge returns. I mean, I like looking at these ads on YouTube and, and I, you know, because I get a kick out of them and I'll take a screenshot if I see something that's particularly brazen. And I, I saw something, you know, I don't have it on this particular computer where someone was promising like a like a 500 percent return you can get this in like 20 days and you don't have to invest in stocks i mean when you see kind of dishonest things like that um that are promising people huge returns or you're gonna make tons of money or i i know this secret like this always happens uh that that skepticism well first of all that kind of skepticism is really healthy with everything you hear uh in especially in the junior mining sector in investing like if you just if you just assume everything is almost bs to begin with and you work from there um, you don't want to be too cynical, but if you make that assumption and you're very skeptical, that's going to serve you very well in this sector. But there's a difference between providing someone a service and providing them actionable information and helping them make money uh, than some of the other things I've mentioned where you know people are promising, hey, I know this thing where you can make 10x or I know you can make 5,000% in 20 days. I think those are the types of things where that the skepticism and that question, it, it makes, uh, it, it fits with that because that would be the reaction that most people would have. Like, okay, that sounds so great. You're guaranteeing money. 
I mean, in in that type of situation, you know that it's dishonest, it's too brazen, and you know that there's probably uh, dishonesty behind what's being sold. Uh, because, of course, if they could were promising you huge money or they, they know this one trick where they can make 5x or 10x, of course, it makes more sense. You know, why is the person selling that? I mean, they're just trying to make money off the sale, uh, not because they're probably not really making money off the one trick or it's ever being advertised. So I think that skepticism is really healthy. So you have to have that. But you have to distinguish between those kind of advertisements and people who are honest providers of information analysis. And I mean, I know that you you interview those honest providers on your show, Bill. And, you know, that, that's why you've, you know, that's why you built a following. That's why uh, certain newsletters grow and, and certain ones don't. So it has to be about, you know, are you providing legitimate service? Are you helping people? Are you serving people? And that's what I try to do in my service. And look, I tell people, you know, I am trying to make you money. Like if I, if I don't help you make money, you shouldn't subscribe or you should cancel. Like that's perfectly fine. If I didn't help you make money, uh, that's, you know, it, it's perfectly fine if you yell at me or criticize me because you're a customer, you paid me money. If I didn't help you make money, that that's fine. Uh, you know, that's part of how um, I'm providing a service. And, you know, that's part of how I'm trying to help people and serve people and provide people information. And look, intelligent investors, people who are successful, who want to make money, they're going to seek out newsletters and other forms of information that can help them. If it doesn't help them, you know, they cancel and they move on and and look for something else that can help them. So I think that, again, that skepticism is really healthy, but you have to direct it in the right places. And you have to, number one, you should direct it in the junior mining sector as a whole, because that's going to help you not get scammed or fooled along the way. But it's secondly, also with newsletters, but you have to gear that a little bit more towards newsletters who are promising you're going to make tons of money and that, you know, they can show you, you know, they have this trick or this tip or whatever, or they can help you make lots of money. I think the skepticism is most appropriate uh, towards that type of information provider versus, someone like myself and the other people you interview who are providing honest information and trying to help people make money. To learn more about Jordan's service, go to thedailygold.com and you can also follow Jordan on Twitter and that link will be in the show notes. Jordan, thanks for coming on today's show and providing your insights. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. 
the mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.